Welcome to Writers Radio. I'm Ingrid Rose, host for this program, What I Miss, by Rosanna Hilly. What Rosanna misses is told in the last story in her recently published memoir, Swimming in Stories, The River of My Life. In 2017, Rosanna Hilly was diagnosed with Parkinson's, which has slowly affected her speech and mobility. One of her stories, Finding Gold in New York, was broadcast here on Writers Radio in April 2021 and read by Christina Marie Moth. Today, Rosanna's story, What I Miss, is read by her daughter, Veda Hilly. Veda is a well-known Canadian singer-songwriter whose music was heard at the beginning of this program. You'll hear Veda sharing a remarkable tribute to her mother in the conversation I have with her. A big part of Rosanna's story relates to her involvement in Subud, the international spiritual practice founded in the early 30s in Indonesia. Between 1993 and 2007, Rosanna Hilly was an active member of Subud's governing body, as well as heading up their international association. This is a real opportunity. I'm very happy to be talking with you, Veda. Oh, it's a great pleasure for me too, Ingrid. I'm so moved by your mom's book. She's really something, hey? I mean, I mean, of course, I love her, but the, the fact that she's delivered this book to us at this late stage in her life, I think, is an incredible, incredible accomplishment and a great gift, obviously. Any parts of it that was surprising to you? I was surprised. I mean, first of all, I was I was delighted to get to know her as a young woman because, of course, as the child of a mother and the and the firstborn child, I always think of her life as beginning when my life did, which is a, an absurdity. So I loved getting to know her as a child and as a young woman at university, in particular. But then the part that really surprised me, honestly, was when I read about her life as chair of Cecilia Dharma which happened when I was in my 20s. So I was busy being a musician and being on the road and being super involved in my own thing. And to discover the incredibly dramatic, somewhat glamorous and extremely rigorous work that she was doing, what, that I had no idea, <laughs> you know? I, like, it, was, it was astounding to see what her life had been like in her, in her 40s and 50s and onward. So I'm curious because one part of the book that really struck me was how open she was able to be with her own family, with her parents. Those letters that she wrote to her parents and sharing what it was like to be at university and she was so guileless. And they, they seem to be fine with hearing about her sex life and, and all her worries and, and concerns and then discovering the spiritual group. I think it's really astounding. And I think the only real regret of the family is that we don't have her mother's letters back to her. 
We are lucky that Tess saved Rosanna's letters. And then for whatever reason, Rosanna didn't save Tess's letters. It would have been amazing to read those conversations. But yeah, I think that especially given the time, like she was born in 1945. And so for her parents to be that free and easy with her, and indeed to send her to Europe for a year of school when she was 16. And I think they were very allowing people. And I think that's what lets children become themselves. It sounded almost like an idyllic childhood. Both her parents were Danish? No, her uh, mother was German and her father was Danish. Her mother was German and uh, had, had Jewish ancestry. Her mother had converted to Catholicism, but in the 30s, Tess was uh, mysteriously fired from her job as a school teacher and the family, I think, had a sense of what was coming. So she moved to South Africa in her early 30s and I think had quite a, a wonderful wild time until, and then she met Paul there, um, who was Danish and was traveling around the world looking for adventure. And they, it was, it was interesting because I think Tess had certainly had a lot of suitors. There's lots of pictures of her with exciting men in South Africa, but she and Paul met and were married in three weeks, which I always love as a, as a love story from, from our family, like just a surety, you know? And your parents, I would say that's quite a love story. Yes. And I, I think uh, similar in a way, as you can read in the book, mom was seeing all sorts of exciting men from university. Uh, and then dad showed up when she was home for a summer in Terrace with a letter of introduction, which I wish we had that letter now, my gosh. They were immediately taken with each other on a very different kind of level. It was not the intellectual uh, relationship that she was having with all these other fellows, but something much more visceral, and it led to a, a great exploration in their lives. And somehow they were on the same wavelength. Obviously, they were drawn by this spiritual organization. It was your dad who first connected with Subud. That's right. So he was, I think he was more of the seeker, but Rosanna was up for anything, <laughs> clearly. Um, and so, yeah, they joined this amazing uh, and must have been quite a wild group. I mean, there's a lot of options in our, the current day for spiritual practices. But in uh, in the 60s, in I think this would have been a pretty unusual thing. Subud came out of Indonesia, uh, was brought to the West by the Gurdjieff uh, followers in England. And it, uh, I'm a Subud member as well. It's a very open uh, spiritual practice that uh, amends itself to, or you can apply to any belief system. So it's open to all faiths and just allows this possibility of, of uh, a connection to whatever higher power you believe in. And it seems to me that it's very discreet. It's not a group that advertises itself. No, it's, it's funny. It's one of the, I mean, it's one of the things I've loved about the group. Uh, is that uh, it's worldwide, but uh, there's a very strong feeling of, of anti-proselytization. And, and so you really have to want to find it <laughs> if you're interested. I mean, it's been, and it's been interesting because I've been in the public eye for a long time, um, but I've only talked about Subud a few times, but now in uh, doing interviews with my mom about the book. It speaks a lot to your mom's voice that comes through this book. It's so humble. Mm. 
she's surprised that she finds herself in these roles that she plays. And it seems to me it's really how you act mm. every yeah. day. An attempt to surrender to the will of a higher power in your daily life and to a practice of following in a lot of ways, but not following another person, right? Trying to follow your own sense of connection to the divine. I think her humility is real. I'm a much more of an egotist. She seems genuinely astounded that anyone even wants to read this book. So it's delightful. It's delightful to watch her uh, get to receive these, these interests from people. In the story that you read, which brings it right up to Rosanna's illness, which is slowly depriving her of certain means of communication and the activities, because after all, your mum was multi-talented, right? She was an artist. She was a businesswoman. She had how many children? She had three children. She had three children, <laughs> all obviously very talented. The way she relates to the world now, is that just because of her nature or is it part of the spiritual practice? It's some combination probably, but I do think that it is about surrender. I think there's a lot of con there's a lot of concentration, especially in Western society, about about will and will to action. And I think that the practice of surrender is extremely useful, particularly in situations where you have very few other choices. And I've always thought that that the practice of subud, in some ways, is something that leads us to accept death, which I think is a serious necessity because it's coming for everyone. She has to be a lot stiller than she used to be, but I find that her, her powers of observation are still so sharp. She's experiencing the world in a very concentrated way. This is Veda Hilly reading from Rosanna Hilly's book, Swimming in Stories, The River of My Life. Chapter 33 What I Miss In early 2017, at the age of 72, after a month-long bout of the flu, that left me unable to get off the couch. I began to have mysterious symptoms. The trembling of my left hand varied in intensity. My fine motor skills were reduced. I sensed my walking was crooked, limping even, and I was constantly typing too many E's and A's at the keyboard. In June 2019, I was diagnosed with Parkinsonism, a movement disorder usually leading to Parkinson's disease. It was an explosion in consciousness to suddenly have a vision of how my life may end. Since then, I have gradually become acutely aware of how my body moves, 
whether it is calculating how to rise from a chair or where to place my feet in a turn so I don't fall over or smiling on cue in a conversation. It feels like a time of standing still and life as movement has become very small. I never thought of any of this before and I wonder what this new slow pace has to teach me. Now I talk to my brain and thank it for all those years of effortless movement, and I marvel at the scope of being alive, the stretch of ancestors, and the rhythm of life. When I see a long stretch of physical decline on my path ahead, my awareness of every move becomes what nurtures me. I felt immensely free when I had the autonomy to travel alone, to let go of my daily responsibilities, pack a small bag to sustain me, and climb on a plane. I followed the sun, the stars, and the moon, or traveled against time over the date line, looking down on this wonderful planet spread out below, the maps I loved as a child come to life. Those hours in the air were a breathing space between worlds, letting go of my familiar life and getting inwardly ready for the new and unfamiliar. What is going to happen now? Who will I meet on this trip? And what will we create together? I would step out somewhere I had never been. Greenland, Hong Kong, Kinshasa, Sydney, Kiev, Colombo, Buenos Aires. Curious and expectant. I still travel alone, but the adventures are inward now, and they take me to different landscapes. I miss the holy act of gardening, not simply the results. I can thank the farmers and buy the best locally grown food and flowers, or hire a gardener to make it all happen, but this does not replace my kneeling before the earth, hands in the dirt coaxing seeds alive, freeing them from the strangle of buttercups or swooning at the whiff of basil, thyme, and rosemary. I miss grazing my garden like a goat, nibbling on the new kale and chard, the lovage and lemon balm, or taste-testing. Is this new spike an onion, a leek? or perhaps garlic. Early mornings, the dew washes my bare feet in a communion with nature, and I am grounded, searching for the newest ripe raspberry or tomato or strawberry, and later the rich mulched soil pours forth potatoes and garlic, and apples rain down. It is not the yield that elates me. It is the joy I once gathered to my heart, working with nature's bounty, learning every day. There was a time when I could make soup, bounce a baby on my hip, plan my next textile design, and hold a conversation all at the same time. I felt wildly engaged in everything. But those days are gone, and I miss the excitement. I was so hungry for life and had the energy for it. I still make soup, but when the baby comes to visit, I can't bounce her on my hip. I'm even afraid to pick her up. What if my shaky arms should drop her? The designs I focus on now are the structure of stories, using written words that require me to make sense of the pattern of my life. I can converse, 
but my voice fades away to a whisper, and I see friends leaning in. Articulation is sucked back to a hoarse whisper, stumbling for words, and I think of all that talking I did to groups of people around the world. So many years it was, and I guess I had something to say, for they kept listening. I practiced my voice exercises. Ka, ka, ka. La, la, la. And shout and grimace, but see little improvements. I wonder if I can learn sign language to avoid becoming locked in the box that is me. And singing? That is a long-ago dream of expressing joy to the world. My handwriting now starts out brave, but then flees off into the horizon, and by the end of the sentence it is a wobbly thin line that even I can't read. What was I thinking? and trying to communicate. The lasso of words I toss to another human being falls short again and again. I feel lonely without this trusty thread of words to reach into the mind, heart, and soul of another. I also miss the relationship I had with myself through my handwriting when I could see anxiety, hesitation, or full-blown confidence strut across the page. I could read so much more than words into those loopy lines on the page. It was an art form. I learned cursive script as a child, never printing, by repeating the arc of each letter over and over in my notebook, guided by two dotted lines, one for tall letters, one for short ones. Today I can read the words I type on the computer easily, but I can no longer read the feelings that I poured into those words. I am still hungry for life, but now I have to take smaller bites, one flavor at a time. Gold and silver flakes fall gently, shimmering, as I walk on the bottom of the sea, on sandstones lit, golden and clean, showering me with wealth, I stride through my glorious life. So this is what peace feels like. Active, joyous, golden, and wet. I walk in the world to love it, writes Mary Oliver in The Wasteland, an elegy. And this phrase leaps out at me because I have been obsessed with walking lately. I never considered what walking involves because I could do it without effort, without a thought. I could even run once, not well, but for fun, to hurry, to play, or to catch a falling child or a falling star. Walking was as simple as falling. It was a blessing bestowed, but never recognized, for I always had it. Why did I never think this ability might go away? Even sitting by his bedside, talking to my paralyzed father at the end of his life so many years ago, it never occurred to me that I might be here one day. Just as well. More recently, watching people struggle to walk or even move brought up fear, but never understanding, for it was before my time for this adventure. To my friends with crutches, 
We know it is inconvenient, but it is short-term, like a bothersome cold or bad weather. It will get better. I think of my friend who lost both legs from the knees down in her twenties, and how she never mentions this fact, and has never let it stop her from living a full and active life. Walking is more difficult now, so it has become an act of grace, an act of love. Less about getting to a destination, although sometimes that is necessary. I try multiple remedies and regimes to strengthen my body and hope I will get better, but I am acutely aware of the fact that I may not. This is the idea I have to get used to, to accept, to learn from, to love. Now I hang out with people who can laugh at their brushes with death. The failing heart, the chemo treatments, the x-ray of bones that look like a bowl of Cheerios. Yet they are still thankful for what is left. Now, in appreciation of life, I also walk in the world to love it. I see the glistening rocks on the seashore, striped and speckled messengers of the past, creations of time. Earth's history strewn before me, rolling and bathed like so many small, clean planets in the cosmos at my feet. I know that I, too, am small. I walk through the mosses in my bare feet and marvel at the touch of lichen. I caress the dry black seeds waiting for next year, still clinging to the dead brown stems in my garden. I observe nature singing its silent, endless symphony while flippant songbirds toss the seeds about and sing the alleluia in the laurel hedge. I thank the Creator for waking me up to the splendor of walking, and occasionally I dare to skip, to see if balance is still with me, remembering a time when balance and movement were my constant, invisible companions. I've been reflecting on the time and space, the momentum and abundance that has blessed my life. In writing this memoir, I have been visiting my ancestors through memories and stories, writing and speculation, moving through my life and my children's lives, too. Now, when I spend time with my great-grandchildren discussing the world and watching what fun it is to be here, I wonder how they will remember me as part of their long line of ancestors and history's momentum through time and space. I marvel at the rhythm of life, the cycles of nature, the evolution of us all. There has always been a connectedness of actions, a rhythm that tells me it is now time to roll through to the next thing, to make something whole, whether it is a garden, a meal, nurturing a child, following a dream, courage expressed in effort that leads to action, that leads to change, and the cycle is complete and repeats. Momentum has blossomed my life as I have tried to listen to the silent inner call to engage with the world on my terms. Watching spring arrive in my 76th year, I'm floored by the abundance around me. 
Did the cloister of the pandemic provide me with a new appreciation, a new seeing? The trio of majestic tree peonies are the first to arrive with their dinner plate blossoms of pink, magenta, and white. Bowers of roses embrace and shower me with scent and petals, pink and orange. The apple tree is setting forth fruit and has burst out in purple flowers as the clematis climbs over it. The branch we stuck in the ground to see if it would grow is now a tree, with children climbing and swinging from its branches, a Portuguese laurel spraying its white flowers in May. The Japanese dogwood, planted in memory of our two miscarried baby girls, bows its branches to the ground in prayer, weighed down with pink blossoms. A gaggle of ostrich ferns strut across the beds, while the maidenhair fern blushes in the shade nearby. The boisterous, out-of-control grape gallops around the patio railing, and giant bowls of hosta peek in the window to watch me work. The exuberance of spring continues, and the abundance, like my life, is rich and overwhelming. I am so glad I can still notice. You've been listening to Veda Hilly in conversation with me, Ingrid Rose, and reading her mother's story, What I Miss, from Rosanna Hilly's recently published memoir, Swimming in Stories, The River of My Life. It's been a pleasure to host this writer's radio program and to share it with you. You can buy Swimming in Stories, The River of My Life, both as a book and a digital copy at vedahilly.com forward slash Rosanna hyphen Hilly hyphen swimming hyphen in hyphen stories. You can see this link in the description of the program on our website. My appreciation goes to my co-hosts and co-producers, Carol Harmon and Gary Sim, who is also our music and technical support. Thanks to you too our listeners. You have been listening to Writers Radio, a non-commercial collaborative project which presents talented writers reading their own work. These stories, essays, and conversations revisit the long tradition of oral storytelling that connects us to the inspiration behind the words. Be sure to check the website writersradio.ca to subscribe to our free notifications list. It's also a way of letting the writers know you are there and appreciating their creative work. Writers Radio broadcasts from Half Moon Bay on the Sunshine Coast in Canada. Traditional tribal land of the Shishal Nation of the Coast Salish peoples. We express our gratitude for their wisdom teachings and land stewardship. Mm-hmm.